This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Allison Miller. Allison is a New York-based drummer, band leader, educator, and producer. Her latest project, Rivers in Our Veins, will be released October 6th and is currently performing live around the country. In her early days in New York, Allison studied with Michael Carvin and Lenny White. Since then, in addition to leading multiple projects, she has toured and recorded with Dr. Lonnie Smith, Ani DeFranco, Brandy Carlisle, and many others. We have tons of Patreon content for you to check out, and you can get access to all of it for a buck a month. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer for video lessons, transcriptions, and bonus interview content from our former guests. Once again, a donation of $1 a month gets you access to everything at patreon.com slash working drummer. So Allison has been conducting a busy and prolific career for decades now involving all sorts of capacities. She's been on my radar for a long time and it was good to get better acquainted with her and everything she's been up to. So here we go. Hope you dig Allison Miller. I guess I just want to get a little bit of your origin story because I, you know, in looking at your bio and doing a little bit of research, I, I saw that you studied with Carvin, Michael Carvin, which we'll definitely get into, um, but um, couldn't couldn't really find much before that. Like, did did life begin with Carvin for you, or what? <laughs> what was your musical and drumming life uh, <laughs> before before that? Doesn't all life begin with Carvin? <laughs> it does. It does. And it'll it'll end with Carvin if you and if you're not careful. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, um wow, yeah, Carvin. Carvin, Mike we're talking about Michael Carvin here. Michael yeah. Carvin happened <clears throat> started when I moved to New York. And um actually maybe a year into me moving to New York, I studied with one of his students, Dion Parsons, first for a while. Mm-hmm. And then um, Dion said, okay, now you're ready for my teacher. And <laughs> I didn't know what he meant, but then once I saw Carvin, I knew what he meant. And, yeah. uh, but that was after I was already in New York making a living studying with, you know, and I was also studying with Michael at the same time. Um, before that, I, I'm originally from DC, Maryland area. Oh, and cool. So I, I was, I, I was born in DC. I, I don't really claim it cause we moved out of there when I was like four, but, oh. um, yeah, that, I mean, I wasn't born there, but I, that's where I, my drumming roots came from. And yeah. so I started early, you know, I started when I was playing drums when I was about eight and um, got into jazz pretty quickly um, for various reasons that I could go into more detail with if you want. But mm-hmm. um, I first studied with a, a guy named Walter Saab and he was an old, like an old swing drummer. Um, who had a big band and was just super ornery, um, grumpy, grumpy old dude that I loved dearly. And a grumpy old ornery big band guy. I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was amazing. And I have to tell you, like, 
I've been thinking about your title to your podcast, but, uh, you know, working drummer, like he put me on gigs when I was really young. Like I started, Mm -hmm. well, I started gigging when I was 14, but then once I had my license, he really just started giving me all of his gigs and I Oh, you mean like your driver's license? Yeah. Because I had to get to the gig. Is there there some drumming gigging license in DC that I don't know about? (laughs) If once you swing hard enough, they'll give you a license. Right. <laughs> um, no, but I, I mean, that's how I learned how to play. Like I was just on gigs, on stage, getting my butt kicked and yeah. having, you know, DC at that time had this great lineage of older jazz musicians, older masters who would really take young players under their wings and bring them up kind of, you know, like jazz should be. And yeah. I had some amazing um, musicians who would just, yell at me on stage and tell me what I was doing wrong. And I was like sucking it all up. I loved it. And I would go and like, I would play a song I didn't know. And then like, you should know that song. And then the next day I'd be at the record store buying the song and right. learning it, you know, before, obviously before streaming. So yeah, uh, that was a great time, you know? And then when I went to college, uh, I actually studied, I studied jazz, but I got a classical degree and, um, I really love that I got a classical degree, actually, because I think it changed the way I was thinking about music, and I became a composer and all of those things. So yeah, I, I did the same thing. I, I did um, classical degrees and a jazz degree, um, and I have I have mixed feelings about it because they're you know in in some ways I just I I don't use a lot of what I spent a lot of time on in. Uh, especially in the classical degree. Like I have not touched a marimba in 15 years. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, just in terms of the sensibility it gave me, um, I think, I think there's a lot there. Yeah. I mean, it probably comes out in all kinds of ways that you don't even realize. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, I would like to think so. Every time I make my student loan payment, I, I would like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any student loan payments because I went to a school that wasn't expensive. <laughs> Good for you. That is the way to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, we, that's a whole other podcast that we could get into. Where did you go to school? I went to West Virginia University. Oh, wow. And it was only, at the time, only, um, you know, 10 grand a year. And I got a full scholarship. So there was no, no, there was no fee. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Like, um, your, your life up to this point, um, I have two questions about it. Um, at what point did you sort of like let the classical thing go? At what point did you say, I, I'm going to be a drum set player. This is going to be my focus. Um, and the other question I have, which we can maybe get into, uh, after that is, what drummers, what jazz drummers were you kind of really soaking in as you were learning as you were a teenager? Like, I, I think every jazz drummer um, goes through a period of being like a carbon copy of certain people before they arrive at sort of whatever their identity is. Um, so I'm wondering what that process was like for you. Take those questions in, in either, any order you feel like. Yeah. You know, I think the classical endeavors were always just to improve my musicality and my technique. Mm-hmm. I never had any intention of doing classical professionally. Hmm. Um, okay. cause I, I already knew I wanted to be a drum set player. Uh, but there's a side of, like, I have a really creative side of my brain and then I have a very like functional side 
which is, I think, lends to being, um, you know, I'm a working drummer, but I'm also a band leader and I can, I can compartmentalize in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. But there was something about the classical, like, you know, you studied marimba. So there was something about that challenge. And, you know, I love that feeling of like, if you do this for six hours a day for six months, you're going to be able to do it at the end. Like I'm one of those, I really love, I really embrace progress, not perfection. And yeah, yeah. I love that about like, Oh, I can't hold four mallets. I can't play this arpeggio. And I would just do it over and over and over again to a metronome until I could do it. Like something about, yeah. you know, there's no creativity there. It's just tangible and you just do it until you get it. And I like right. that about, that world. Not that there's not creativity in classical music, obviously there is, but I just loved that feeling of practicing percussion, you know? It's and kind I of love- an obstacle course laid out before you. Like what, what you're talking exactly. about reminds me of like tackling a marimba concerto or something, you know, it's yeah. not, it, you're, you're not being creative in the sense of writing something or improvising for yourself. Like you're tackling this thing and how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And it's just this long process of like yeah. climbing this mountain. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a beast. Yeah. <laughs> you have to wrestle with and and vanquish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I never really had that intention, but I I will tell you I've used it. I've used those skills. Um there was a minute there where I was uh, before COVID, I was getting called to sub on uh, recordings for the Music for Sesame Street oh, and wow. all that stuff was, you know, sight reading um, I should say also, I teach sight reading at the new school, so I'm very much a, a big uh, advocate of sight reading. Yeah. <clears throat> and I've used that many times as a working drummer, to, especially in the studio. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the, there was, I remember the first time I did the Sesame Street thing, it was like, we all show up, the whole band's there, there's a click track, they put the charts on the stand really everybody's nailing these little musical segments in, in one take. Mm -hmm. Um, and then sometimes there would be, uh, I would have two parts and there would be glockenspiel and drum set. So I would lay down the drum set and then while everybody, everybody would be sitting there waiting for me to go onto the next cue while I sight read the glockenspiel part. And I'll tell you what, I was like, way more nervous about that than reading drum set, you know, like I I would be too. (laughs) Oh yeah. I was like shaking. I was like, how am I supposed to hit that little tiny metal bar? You know, but I'm telling you all all of that sight reading and mallet playing in college really paid off because even when I, even being nervous and as everybody's watching me and the time clock is kicking, money's being spent, I was still able to sight read all that stuff. So yeah. You know, it, it does come in handy every once in a while. And it definitely just, comes in handy for writing, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I just had flashbacks of, of playing glockenspiel, and they're like th- that is one percussion instrument where there is nowhere to hide. It is just, it is metal on metal, and, you know, never never mind a wrong note, just like a slight mishit on one of those bars is just going <laughs> to out in front <laughs> right. of God and everybody. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so talk about like the, the, you know, developing sort of your, your jazz voice on the drum set. Um, because I, you know, in, in listening to you and watching you, um, you obviously have like a bebop touch, you're using bebop tuning, but I, I don't 
get a lot of traditional bebop vocabulary from your playing. Right. Um, and I'm wondering, like, obviously you started with this big band guy and it's, it's in there somewhere. Um, but yeah, just right. talk about sort of the, the, the process of finding that. Yeah. I mean, I talk about this a lot with my students actually, cause they, you know, they're at that phase in their life where they are learning, you know, I say, go home and transcribe this Max Roach solo and, <clears throat> you know, check this record out. And so they're in this, they're sucking, you know, they have these like young, vib vibrant brains and they're just mm -hmm. sucking all this information up, but then they're, they're regurgitating it out like verbatim. Right. right. And, yeah. but that's what they should be doing at that time. And for me, I was told, I kind of told, and also it sunk in cause you know, when you're a young drummer, a lot of information does not sink in, but yeah. um, it kind of sunk in with me of like, don't worry about your sound. Like you have no choice but to sound like yourself. What you need to do is just learn the language of the music, suck up as much of the information as you can, and then it's just going to eventually come out like you. Like there's mm -hmm. no, uh, there's you. You have no choice. There's no one on the planet that is the same you. You know. So yeah. I kind of was told at a young age, and I I understood it. And that doesn't mean I didn't torture myself trying to find my sound, but <laughs> it it really did help. And I, you know, I had some really great teachers. I mean, Michael Carvin, when I went to see Carvin, I was very insecure and he could hear all of my insecurities on the drums. You know, I would, mm. I'd be playing and I'd be lost in the moment sounding like myself. And then all of a sudden he could tell exactly when I started thinking, you know, and when I yeah. started thinking <laughs> I needed to impress or my ego like stepped onto the step behind the kit, you know, yep. and he would yep. call me on it every time. And mm. He had me, you know, and I do this with my students too. He had me start playing my name on the ride cymbal as part of my, my ride cymbal dance. That's what he called it. So that really helped me just like embracing who I am. And I think that's a lot of that's pretty conceptual and um, more spiritual, but yeah, I mean, I sucked it. You know, my first love was Tony Williams. I, uh, I, when I was about 12, I guess, maybe seventh grade, I bought, there, were, there was this kid in recess or in, in, in the lunchroom selling cassettes, <laughs> which I'm sure he stole, but he had like two, cassette, <laughs> two cassettes and I just picked the one that looked cooler, which ended up being Miles Smiles, Miles Davis. And, wow. And then I heard Tony and I was like, mind blown. I'm done. You know, like I, yeah. know, I, I, know, I don't know what's happening, but I want to do that. And how so, old were you at this point? 12. 12. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I, I and got, I had, sorry to interrupt that. Like, no, it no, just no. reminded me of like, I got exposed to Tony at an older age, probably 15, 16. Um, cause you know, my band director told me to like, go get, go get a couple of miles Davis records. Just check out miles. And the first one I got was live at the plug nickel with Tony on drum. And I, like, I listened to half a song. I was like, I, I can't handle this. I'm, I don't know what this is. So I had to go back to the beginning to like birth of the cool. And I was like, okay, I, I get this. I'm going to start here. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, well, like, I mean, is... live at the plug nickel is, I mean, uh, sick. That is a yeah. sick record. Yeah. It, like <laughs> I knew it was just like, you know, light years above my head. Yeah. I was like, there's no way, but you at age 12, like heard kind of the same era, the same Tony. And you were like, that's, that's it. <laughs> I did. But you know, it was, there was such a 
I mean, I, I, you know, I could never put words to it then, but there was a freedom to way the way they were playing on that record, yeah, you know, and yeah. and when then when they play Freedom Jazz Dance on Miles Miles and the yeah Tony's doing that triplet thing and yep. um I just and the sound like the way the drums were recorded back then and mm-hmm. his touch, I mean, you know, and of course I didn't know what he looked like, I didn't couldn't watch videos then of YouTube videos or anything, so I just got obsessed. And, and that wasn't the first jazz I heard. I remember my, my teacher, Walter gave me a buddy rich big band record and my parents listened to jazz all growing up too. So, but the, I didn't really dig the buddy rich big band record. And, uh, I don't know why that is. Maybe it was because I, I like the more small group, um, Mm -hmm. music, although I love Basie and Ellington and Mingus. So, but yeah, like I didn't really get pulled in by Buddy. Um, <laughs> sorry, Buddy, but I. But when I heard Tony, I was like, "What the? Can I curse on this podcast?" Go for it. Yeah, like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like it was like still. I mean, the other night I was getting my hair cut and um, in my apartment, and um, I was we were my girlfriend was cutting my hair and. We were, I was like, pick a record because I just you see, I listen to vinyl and right, right. I said, pick a record. And she picked Alive with the Plug Nickel, which I hadn't oh listened to in a long time. And I have to tell you, like, even now, after 40 years of drumming and listening to that record, I'm just it's like it's like a present from the heavens. You know what I mean? Like that, <laughs> yeah. that record and the way Tony is driving the band with Ron. It's just, yeah, it's insane. It's insane. I- I talked to Cindy Blackman Santana recently, um, and we we talked about Tony, um, and she sort of reminded me and and us that like, because um, I was asking her like maybe what are what are some misconceptions about Tony that you know um, that not everybody realizes when they listen to him because you know we know him for just the the insane vocabulary and the way that he sort of transformed what the drums could do. Mm-hmm. But Cindy said like he, he still played the role of the drummer. Like he, he did it in a new way, but he didn't ab- abandon the role of the drummer and what you were saying about how he just drove it with, with Ron Carter. Like mm-hmm. that reminded me. That's so true. I mean, consummate musician. And also yeah. he was an incredible composer. Yeah. yeah really yeah. incredible composer. Yeah. Just so musical. I, Lenny, um, Lenny White, you know, also I studied with Lenny and he, he was very close to Tony and he, you know, he taught me a lot of Tony exercises that Tony taught him. And he told me that, you know, by 16, Tony could emulate any drummer, you know, you, you say, sound like, sound like Max and he would play like Max or, you know, he he talk about, talk about. Uh, sucking in everybody's sound and then finding your own. Like, right. He, he did like, that he at just a very young age. Yeah. On a compressed timeline. Like he went through everybody, you know, by the time he was 16 and he was <laughs> yeah. like, okay, I'm me now. <laughs> yeah. I'm me. I'm going to go play with Miles at 16. Yeah. <laughs> and he had already played with uh, Jackie McLean and, you know, so many people. Yeah. 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 Um. So like you, you, um, you kind of, answered my question uh, or you know a question that i was going to ask which is like how how connected is modern jazz drumming still to old school bebop drumming um this is just a question that sort of occurred to me recently like how how relevant is just going through all the bebop shit and absorbing it all because i'm wondering if like 
enough generations, if enough drummers have come and gone between like the end of the bebop era and now, which is that's at this point is like 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like there's, there have been so many influences and so many voices since the bebop era. Um, but it, it sounds like it's, it's still very much a part of what you teach and, and very much a part of what you want your students to like throw at the wall in addition to other stuff and see what sticks. Yeah. Well, I think there's a real foundation in that style, you know, the, mm-hmm. that traditional approach, the traditional pedagogy to learning jazz yeah. drumming, um, because that it's about feel, it's about groove, it's about, um, motion and energy and emotion, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, it's about the quarter note. Like one thing I learned from <laughs> Lenny, Lenny White is that he was like, every beat's equal. You know, you can't put more emphasis on one beat. They're all equal. And it's, it's about that hump. It's about that pulse. Yeah. And there's such a foundation in that. I mean, you know, obviously you play jazz and there's a, there's like, it's like the never ending journey to deepen your ride symbol quarter note pulse, you know, yeah. they will every, every jazz drummer who's really dedicated will continue to do that. And yep. I, I, I will say that I've noticed in my, cause I, you know, I'm an educator. I've noticed in my teaching over the last 15 years is that my, the drummers that are coming in to study with me every year seem a little further away from that corner note pulse hmm. than, than they were when I first started, you know, right. teaching. And I think that's because we're losing our masters, you know? So I thought about this this weekend because I was at the playing at the Detroit Jazz Festival and I got a chance to finally meet Lewis Hayes and hang out with wow. him a little bit. And mm. I'm thinking, man, like I, I feel really lucky because I've had the chance to meet a lot of the greats. And he's one of the last great uh, master jazz drummers who's still alive and actually playing, you know? Right. Because right. Roy, Roy Haynes is alive, but he's not playing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, wow. So I, and then I started thinking about it. And I was like, well, so many of my students never even got a chance to hear a master drummer in person in a, in a club, you yeah. know? And there's a huge difference about, there's a huge difference from learning music from like Spotify or whatever and which I don't know if how many students are actually listening to entire records anymore at the same, you know, yeah. they kind of, they skip around. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge difference between that and, or checking out a record and going to hear a live performance. I mean, first time I saw Elvin, I was like, Oh, <laughs> I learned a lifetime of drumming and professionalism and musicianship from that one show, like yep. from, from 16 bars of hearing Elvin live. I was like, Oh, 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 you know, (laughs) it was amazing. I heard Tony, I heard Tony at Birdland. I sat like two feet from Tony about two months before he passed and heard him play with Ron Carter and Mulder Miller, rest in peace as well, Mulder Miller. And it was mind blowing. And it was like, wow, he's playing really loud, but somehow it's still musical. Like I can't really, which, which, which goes towards what Cindy said. It's like, he was still functioning, doing the function of the drummer, right. but it was like, I could hardly hear Ron and Mulgrew, but it, it still was super musical and swinging. Yep. <laughs> and that's yep. magic. You can't explain it. And, 
And, you know, it's little things like, you know, some of these younger drummers, they haven't had a chance to hear the masters or even mentor with a master. Right. And, right. um, like I feel lucky cause I studied with two masters, Michael Carvin and Lenny white, you know, and it doesn't get any better than that, you know? And, yeah. and just, they didn't have to say anything. I, just being in the same room with them would change my life, you know? And, and Lenny taught me how to listen to records. Like sometimes we wouldn't play drums at all. We would just listen to records together and talk about them, you know? And, mm-hmm. Sometimes I bring that up with my students. I say, hey, do you guys ever get together with your friends and listen to records? And they're like, what? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like music exists before we had headphones, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. You yeah. know? Um, so, yeah. I, I, I think mean, it's I, like it's part of a larger loss of context that Spotify and YouTube and, and Instagram um, are contributing to. And, in, in you know, in some ways, there's more available to students than ever before. But without the context of like, especially jazz, like jazz, jazz exists in a room, like with people, like it is a live medium. um, And there are things that you understand when you're in the room with it that you don't fully grasp if you're just listening to it or, you know, trying to learn it from a book. Um, Absolutely. Especially in 30 second chunks. You know, like if you Absolutely. sit down and watch a master drummer play for an hour, you'll walk out of there understanding a whole lot more. <laughs> Absolutely. You, I mean, just something as simple as balance, right? Like yeah. balance or like what are, what are things you do at the end of this solo to propel the next solo? Like very basic information that you might not even consciously realize at the time, but it's going to get in there sub into your subconscious somehow. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're in the room listening, I, when I um, first moved to New York, uh, Cedar Walton trio was, would play a lot at the Vanguard. And back then they would let students in for like $5. And yeah. I used to go, like if Cedar was playing, I would go hear Billy Higgins every night and just sit there Man. smiling my, ass off yeah watching him play listening to him play you know uh i remember one time it was like i was smiling so much that he billy higgins and i was like very shy back then so i was afraid to introduce myself and he, he actually came up to me and he was like you must be a drummer because <laughs> like, you're just staring at me smiling and i was like yes <laughs> i'm a drummer <laughs> that's great yeah yeah the other thing about experiencing you know, a, a master drummer live for an entire set of music is that ho- hopefully one of the things you'll take away is like, yeah, there was a drum solo. Yeah. There was some fireworks. Yeah. There was like some, some red meat for your drummer reptile brain, but you know, it's, it's likely that that drummer spent about 90% of their time, just like you, like you said, banging out quarter notes on the ride cymbal. Um, and I think that's something that's overlooked when, you know, people are starting to learn jazz. They, they think they've got to immediately dive into the four limb independence and the improvisation and the snare comping and the, you know, and I try to tell people just, just play the goddamn ride symbol, just play it to death. Cause that's, I interviewed, uh, Joe, um, Oh shit. New York drummer. Um, wears a suit all the time. Oh, Joe Farnsworth. Joe, Joe Farnsworth. I interviewed Joe Farnsworth <laughs> recently. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> See it like we, and we talked about the fact that he wears a suit all the time 
because it's like his thing. And, right. and sure enough, it, it served him because my dumb ass couldn't remember his name, but he's the guy that wears the suit all the suit time. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> but we talked about that. He was like, that's all anybody wants. And you look at the range of artists that he plays with. They, you know, they range from the very straight ahead to the very avant garde. And all any of them want is fucking quarter notes. <laughs> totally. Totally. I couldn't yeah. agree with Joe more. <laughs> really, I, I mean, it's like. Also, I feel like I'm. I'm feeling fired up because I feel like a broken record. Because I tell my students that all the time. I'm like, that doesn't feel good. Like, what does that? <laughs> what you just played doesn't mean anything to me because it doesn't feel genuine or feel good. You know. So, yeah. how do we get to there? Quarter notes. Come on. Yeah. Like, you know. Even yeah. today, it, I just I just taught my. I had a I coach an improv ensemble on Wednesdays and. And um, I had them playing. Oh, you, we've been working on some like more modern stuff. But today I was like, why don't we warm up with Stella by Starlight? You know, mm-hmm. and then they started eight bars later. I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh, stop, 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 stop. I was like, who has not heard this song? And then the piano player was like, I haven't mm-hmm. heard it. And I'm like, yeah, I can tell. Yeah. And then within the first eight bars, um, once I got them going, I, it took me about 20 minutes just to get them to actually just play the root notes on the bass to feel and just play just play quarter notes like it was really difficult you know and mm-hmm. they had a very hard time doing it you know it was it was interesting it's like yeah yeah simplicity I, can be very difficult for people it's the scariest thing man um yeah. even like whether whether you're playing time or you know working out solo ideas like Simplicity leaves a lot of space, and space is scary. So let's uh, before we go on, you know, waxing too philosophical about obscure <laughs> jazz concepts. Um, let's talk <laughs> no, about something. No, no one will listen to the, the podcast <laughs> if we go there. Um, but let's talk about something tangible, which is your new record. Um, oh, you yeah. you have a long track record as a as a band leader. Um, I think there's like ten or twelve records under your name. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, there's there's lots to talk about with this record as far as you know the the concept behind it um and i also want to hear about uh just the the seeming partnership in this record with tap dancing yeah well uh yeah where do i start (laughs) um well i've worked with dancers for years i'll I'll just say that um Mm -hmm. And that was a really conscious decision, actually, because I um, I was having this kind of crisis like 15 years ago because I realized that I was playing all of this really heady jazz, contemporary jazz that would switch meters every bar and and nobody would come to the shows. And, you know, and, every, and you look out in the audience and you look out in the audience and everybody's so still. And right. I was like what is wrong here? You, you, know, like, you just cracked me up because like you, the first thing you said was it switch metered every bars. And then the second thing you're, nobody was at the show. 
<laughs> the two I salient mean, features of heady jazz. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, the ultimate self-pleasure for musicians, yes. right? You know, heady yes. musicians. Anyway, so I... I was like, what What happened? I used to go dancing in clubs. I used to play with dancers. I used to like, music used to feel so good, you know? And then I just, I do, I do this thing where I'm like, I'm putting it out in the universe that I want to, I want to work with dancers, you know? Mm-hmm. And then literally like three or four years later, I was like, ah, I gotta, I gotta take less, I gotta take fewer dancing choreography gigs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I tapped as a kid. I love tap dance. I just, I somehow, you know, it's kind of a, there, there was nothing to it, but just a, a product of hanging. Like my, when I used to tour with Ani DeFranco, um, her merch person was dating this woman, Michelle Dorrance. And I didn't know, I just met Michelle through hanging, you know, like partying after shows. And then one day I was over at, um, her, I should say also her girlfriend at the time was cutting my hair. And so <laughs> she was like, Oh, come to my, come to my girlfriend's um, dance studio and I'll cut your hair. We're hanging out here. And it was like this very dingy little space on the lower East side. And um, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? And, but, <laughs> but I walked in and there was a drum set and I was like, Oh, why is there a drum set here? And then Michelle's like, well, you know, I'm, I have sessions here. I'm, I'm a tap dancer. And I was like, oh, she's like, and then she said, do you want to trade? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so we ended up trading and she started quoting, she was quoting Max. She was quoting Blakey, like wow. serious heavy tap dancer. Turns yeah. out I had no clue, but Michelle Dorrance is like one of the most famous tap dancers out there. And she's a huge company, Dorrance Dance. And mm-hmm. so that connection was a pretty early connection. And then um, I started, I worked with her company because I work with a, a one of my best friends is Toshi Regan, who's a big singer, songwriter, activist. And so we did a project together and then it just snowballed from there. And um, when this opportunity came up to write the music for Rivers in Our Veins, which is my record that's coming out, uh, it, was, it was basically a grant and a commission that I received to write a suite of music uh, honoring our rivers. And um, uh, I guess it's kind of a conservation suite because I, it was... Um, it turned into that because in my research and writing the music, I started leaning more towards like cultural uh, longevity along rivers connected with uh, conservation and environmentalism and like the longevity of the actual species of, that live in the rivers that we need to right. keep alive, you know? Right. And so it turned into that. And as the piece grew, I just started feeling like I needed a visual representation of the motion of a river. And I was of course drawn to tap. And I'm also on this continual uh, crusade to make people realize that jazz, uh, that tap dance is not old and archaic, that it can actually be modern sounding and feel good at the same time, like jazz can be, you know? So that's where that started. And now this piece has grown into, we just performed it at Detroit jazz. And now I have three dancers and a contemporary dancer. And, um, wow. there's, there's a whole video projection, you know, it's a, it's a real multimedia piece and the record is just one aspect of it, but I did include some tap on it, um, which was fun, you know, and I think they're yeah. psyched. Like when we were just at the Detroit jazz festival, the, all the dancers were like, this is awesome. Like, 
we've been trying to get tap at jazz festivals for years. And I'm like, I know I'm on a mission. Let's do it. And, and, and it used to be really normal, you know, like Duke Ellington used to travel with two tap dancers, you know, it's, it's such a part of it, you know? And for me, I just, I get so much joy out of it. Like if I'm taking a, I'm playing and I can watch a dancer move at the same time. It's like heaven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're right. There's always been, um, that, presence within jazz um right i when i lived in kansas city i played gigs with uh ronnie and lonnie mcfadden um who were the like this this brother duo they both played like trumpet and sax and they both sang and they both tap danced and their dad whose first name i don't remember but like he he was a tap dancer with basie back in the day wow cool Um, so like there's always been this this you know, partnership, this connection in, you know, between the world of jazz and the world of dance in general, but, but tap especially. Um, yeah. And you mentioned like, you know, that <laughs> she was like quoting Max and Elvin and all this shit. Like yeah. there is literal overlap in vocabulary between what drummers do and what tap dancers do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you're, wait, you're from Kansas city. Do you know Jeff Harshberger? I do. I like, and I'm not from there. I I spent seven years there. That's where I went to grad school, and that's where uh-huh. I kind of, you know, became an adult uh, musically and otherwise. Um, but I was I was wondering if because when I lived there, I remembered hearing your name. I remembered you coming through town, and and yeah. I was trying to remember if you had a Kansas City connection. And it is bassist Jeff Harshbarger, probably yeah. among others. Jeff and 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 Mike D. Mike Dillon. Right. I just interviewed Mike. You did? Yeah, yeah, a couple weeks ago. Mike and I used to tour with Ani together. That's um, right. Back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I love Mike. Yeah, I know a lot of jazz musicians in KC. Um, I don't know if he's still... I think Mark Mark is still there. Um, You know, Mark... um, he, he builds all these cool reed instruments. Mark, Mark Sutherland. Sutherland, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he lives in Tulsa now. But yeah, he was like a, a way out there avant-garde, yeah. you know, saxophonist, horn sculptor. Uh, yeah, I remember man. doing one of his shows where we all dressed up in these bodysuits. It was <laughs> amazing. The, it was yeah. amazing. That was like yeah. my favorite side gig ever. Yeah, no, no Mark Sutherland show was complete without some uh, dress-up aspect, I think. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> he did, like, I, I'll never forget, he did one of those shows. It was like an art installation, uh, you know, multimedia thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it was like an hour and a half long and, and you know... It was just, it was wacko. It was completely out there and uh, they, they got done with it and everybody clapped and, and Mark Sutherland, like he said, thank you very much for coming everyone. Now go listen to Steely Dan. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. (laughs) Oh man. Um, but yeah, so, so getting back to the, the record, um, this is like a through composed sort of, uh, it's it's more than just a collection of tunes. This is like a, yeah. a composed piece. It's it's my my largest compositional endeavor. Actually, that's not true. The last two years before, well, during COVID, I got hired to write music for a, a big video game, and that was a huge cr- wow. endeavor, um, <clears throat> which I can't say anything about right now, but eventually I could say something about it. Um, cool. But yes, this was a huge endeavor, and... I really, um, you know, like I, 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 I don't half-ass things, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I worked really hard on this. I mean, I based off of five rivers. Um, so I, I would go to those rivers. I would do things as simple as just sit by the river and record sounds on my phone. I would watch the varying flow rates of the rivers. Um, and I, I took those stuff and I was like, well, how can I apply this to a musical, in a musical situation? And so sometimes if you listen to the record, you'll hear like a piano, a piano line that sounds like it's in a different meter than the drum part. You know, a lot of kind of almost like percussion ensemble, really like overlaying single lines that work together in a polyrhythmic way where you could hear it all as one, it's one unit, but it also has separate flow rates basically. And so I did, I did a lot of that. Steve Reich type business. Exactly. I also, you know, I really wanted to, focus on the fact that, you know, our rivers, and I don't, you know, in modern society, I'm not sure how much people think about this, but rivers have really been the lifeline to America, Mm -hmm. um, especially when we relied on them for transport of goods, um, uh, food, you know, all of these things. And I wanted to remind people of that. And so, and to notice their local waterways after they see a show or they listen to the record or whatever. And I wanted it to feel I wanted it to groove. I wanted it to have a lot of really strong melodies that you would leave singing. Um, so much so that now my, actually my girlfriend's like, this is annoying. I can't get these songs out of my head. Um, <laughs> and my, my dancer said that the other day too, but you know, I wanted it to feel good. I wanted it to have a really loose language flowing feeling. I wanted it to kind of hearken different, um, really distinctly American genres like blues, um, Americana, Mm-hmm. jazz i also wanted to sound contemporary a lot of like backbeat like almost like levon helmish kind of yeah. backbeat music um and then obviously i'm i write how i write so it's going to sound like my writing but uh that was kind of where i was coming coming at with it and and as the piece grew i just realized oh it, i don't know i it just kind of fell together it was like once we started rehearsing I was like, oh, this piece needs to lead into this piece, and this piece is going to segue to this one. And it, it turned out to be almost all segues, which yeah. does not make my life easy. But, <laughs> uh, you know, neither does having 10 people on tour with me make my life easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. During COVID, I promised myself that I was going to stop having big ensembles and just have like duos and trios so I could actually. Right you know, not be stressing about money. And then I made my ensemble bigger. So I don't, you know, I guess my, my creative visions take over, you know? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Um, it's interesting what you said about just sort of like noticing your local river. Um, and this, this conversation is coming at an apropos time for me. Cause in the last 10 months I've been to like 30 cities. We're doing like pretty much one city a week with this tour. Oh, wow. And, it has blown my mind. Like I, I never really realized how most cities in America are on a river or at least very close to one. Um, and, uh, I mean, they, they, cause they, they couldn't have existed. Those cities wouldn't have existed before industrialism. Right. And, and the, um, mass transit and, you know, highways basically. Right. Cars. Right. That was like, that was the way to get things and people from, from A to B. And if you weren't on a river, you, it's going to be hard to get anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they're, Um, and they're always like, you know, certain cities, you still can't swim in those rivers. Like, uh, 
we just did a we just did this show down in in um, in Maryland actually at the Strathmore Theater, and we teamed up with two local river keeper organizations, which are you know these not these nonprofit mostly volunteer organizations that work really hard to clean up the rivers. And, mm-hmm. you know, we raised a bunch of money for them um, during our performance. And we did all, you know, I did a bunch of interviews and research with them. And, um, you know, basically I'm dedicated to this beyond the music for sure. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, they said, you know, in DC, you can't swim in the Potomac river or the Anacostia river. Wow. And they're, they're really, they have an initiative that by 2025, you will be able to, but you know, it's like, that's sad because not everybody yeah. can afford to go to a pool, you know, like right. people need to or be able beach. to get in or the beach, you know, like not everybody in DC can get in a car and drive to the, the coast. You know, mm-hmm. people need to be able to get in their local river and yeah. have, have fun. It's funny. You, you think of, uh, you know, I mean, I think of bodies of water that are so polluted that you can't swim in them as sort of a relic from the seventies. Like you think you, you think about the Cuyahoga catching fire, (laughs) you know, um, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's still very much a problem in a lot of places and maybe even a bigger problem than it used to be. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Some, some, some rivers have done well with their cleanup, you know, like, the Hudson River's gotten a lot cleaner, um, but you can't, you really still can't, you really shouldn't swim in it on, in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the Detroit, like the Detroit River, um, they're one of the cleaner urban rivers now, um, yeah, which is great. awesome. Yeah. And they used to be like the, one of the worst rivers. Yeah. So. I remember George Carlin did a great bit about how, like when, when he was a kid, uh, him, him and his friends never got polio because they were tempered in the Hudson River. <laughs> 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 he was like the polio never had a prayer <laughs> i remember getting in the going to coney island you know i mean i still go to coney island all the time but it was dirtier you know 15 years ago and i remember yeah. going me and my friends we'd go on friday nights and we'd ride the cyclone which i don't know if you know the cyclone yes we'd, we'd ride the cyclone and then at nine o'clock like right at nine they would do fireworks every friday night and we would all just run as fast as we could into the into the ocean and then run out. And it was like trying to get a thrill in, in a sense of like, Cody, you know, cyclone, yeah. run into the ocean. And, you know, <laughs> and we would do this like a lot. And it was so like every time I got out of the water, I felt like I was radiating some kind of electric, like toxic <laughs> I don't even know, like soy and yeah. green, you know, I was like, ah, you know. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, um, and remind me the, like, you, you, you kind of base this on, on five rivers that are in the New York area. What are they again? It's kind of the Northeast. It's um, the Hudson River, the Potomac River in D.C., the Delaware River, um, the Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, and the James River, which is more down in Virginia. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. Cool. And so like this commission was, was just sort of, uh, raising, raising awareness and hopefully, uh, money to help this effort. Yeah. It actually didn't even start with the, with the idea of raising money for organizations. It was really strictly a compositional commission that I received through a mid Atlantic arts organization and JTN, which is jazz touring network and Lake Placid center of the arts. And Mm -hmm. 
there was no intention really beyond producing this piece and premiering it. We did like a seven, seven show performing arts center tour. Um, but once I finished it, I was just so fired up about it. And like, it was like, I felt purpose and I don't know, just really like, Oh, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be combining my compositions with dance and drumming and conservation activism, you know, it was that kind of feeling. So I've, I just kind of took the bull by its horns and I've been building it up since. And what feels best for me is that when we perform this, we, we really make an effort to raise awareness to my audience members who might not be even be aware that there is a river keeper local organization, you know? So if, mm -hmm. if we can raise awareness, raise a little money, maybe even get a couple volunteers to sign up to clean up their river, then I feel like, you know, there's a larger purpose to it. That's making a difference. playing with Ani DeFranco um, and at, at one point you did the you did the 8G sit-in uh, thing on, the, on yeah. Seth Meyers yeah. um, and, and I'm also very interested in your tenure with uh, Dr. Lonnie Smith um, yeah. and all, all three of these things are kind of like that you know outside the jazz realm and, and I'm wondering how much of your jazz self you bring into those. I mean, Dr. Lonnie Smith is kind of in the, in the middle ground, but like he's, uh, he's definitely not Lonnie DeFranco, but it's not like a straight ahead sort of splang a lang. Uh, yeah. Although thing. I did some, I did some splang a lang with him. Like, yeah. cause the trio, the main working trio when I was with him was with Peter Bernstein. Oh, and Jesus. we, we made this record jungle soul and then we toured a lot and we, we, we swung. Like, you know, Peter, like, yeah. we yeah. played a lot of shuffles. We played a lot of like, like slow as molasses ballads, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I learned so much from Lonnie, but yeah, you know, I've always loved all types of music. You know, I, I only talked about my jazz roots, but you know, I grew up listening to, you know, tons of, I mean, I'm Prince was like my number one, you know, mm, and yeah. um, early Prince, you know, and. MJ and all the pop, tons of R and B and hip hop, yeah. early hip hop, and I mean, um, talk about a connection to dance. Totally, yeah, and and also you've probably interviewed other DC drummers, but Gogo, DC Gogo, is like a huge yeah. influence for me. So, um, you know, I never like when I was young, no one ever told me you can't play more than one style of music, you know, or no one ever said. Also, by the way, no one ever said, no, you know, when I was coming up, no one ever pointed out that I was, um, that I was a girl ever. Hmm. Like it wasn't until I got to college that people made a big deal about it. And I was like, what's well, a big deal? I'm just playing hmm. drums, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. um, uh, my, my parents were really cool about that. Like not, and if people did say something, either I ignored it and put, you know, blocked it out or, or my parents didn't let me hear it or something. I don't know. Right, but, right. but, um, yeah, like, I just was like, why, why can't I play all types of music, you know? And then I remember moving to New York and 
someone said, you know, I forget who it was, but they said, you know, you can't really like, you won't find your voice or you won't have a career if you're playing too many different styles. And I was like, well, why not? Like, that's who I am, you know? So Mm -hmm. I would say my first, I was really, when I first moved to New York, I was like strict bebop, playing bebop. Yeah. And I've kind of fell into a pop gig. I fell into playing with Natalie Merchant. And the only reason that happened was because uh, the guy she was dating at the time was a bass player and he, I was playing restaurant gigs with him in the city and, and, and he, I guess not uh, Natalie was looking for a drummer for more of a focus tour. And she wanted, I think in her mind, like jazz, a jazz drummer would be more sensitive and play with brushes and things. And so Mm -hmm. she, he, he recommended me and then I auditioned and I got the gig, you know, and, but I had no clue. I mean, talk about a working drummer lesson is that I had no clue how to play behind Natalie Merchant when I first started. And I had so much ego, you know, I was young, you know, and I just thought it was all about my slick fills, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and she started calling from her. I I still, I still, uh, I just played drums on her last record. So I have a very long musical relationship with her, but I was only 23 or something when she hired me. And I think, you know, I went from playing bebop in clubs to like playing, you know, the Chicago Bulls stadium, you know, and like, or the arena, you know, playing very right. large venues at that time with her. And, and she would always turn around and call me the jazz and the jazz ambassador because <laughs> she would say, I hear you jazz ambassador. Like now stop playing all that crap, you know? Oh and my God. I know. And I oh, really, I'm telling you, I learned so much from her. You know, I learned like, don't just play the, what the song calls for. Just yeah. play, make it feel good. Play what the song calls for. Don't get in the way of the lyric mm-hmm. and actually know what the song's about. Like know the lyric because then you can yeah. play appropriately, you know, and that stuff was just, I was clueless, you know, and yeah. then I learned that so much. And then with Ani, I learned to let go. I learned that with Ani, I really learned that, that it's, she's really, a true improviser because Ani mm-hmm. changes it every night. Like you, mm-hmm. there is like with Natalie, it was very set, you know, with Ani, it was like, she basically had to, I had to ask her like, what am I doing wrong? You know, because I felt like she wasn't into my drumming when I first started playing with her. And then she said, well, I hired you cause you're a jazz drummer. And I was like, Oh, she's like, just play like jazz. And I was like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> why do you tell me that? You know, yeah, um, yeah. cause she heard me at the 55 bar in, in New York and that's why she hired me, you know? And, right. and she heard me on a Dr. Lonnie Smith record and <laughs> she was a huge, she was a huge Lonnie fan. So man, that's great. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's different. And then, you know, like, I feel like every single singer I've worked with non-jazz singer, they've taught me so much, you know, um, Brandy Carlisle, I work with Brandy and she taught me so much about just, like with that band, I was really like the hired gun, you know, like keep it steady, really mm-hmm. do my job as a drummer. Um, she's got such a huge voice. She doesn't care how loud you play. She just right. like, do whatever. She'll do anything, you know. So, yeah, yeah every, every situation has been a great learning experience and, and um, I value all of them. And I think it's like I celebrate that, that I'm not, that I don't, I don't fit in one genre. Like I can just mm-hmm. kind of mold around because also you said like, Oh, you're, you have the touch of a traditional jazz drummer, bebop drummer, but you don't have this all the same vocabulary. And I could actually 
just pull that vocabulary out if I wanted because I've learned it all. Right. But all those other influences have have affected my sound. So yeah. um, for me, I actually when I take a drum solo, I think more about trying to sound like water and trying to have a conversation. Like sometimes I treat each drum as a person and. I this is something I noticed in uh, there was a particular video I, I don't remember which one but it was it was one of your solos and and like your your phrases are like gestural I don't yeah. there's there's not a lot of like I, I I mean this in a good way but like it doesn't feel like you're really concerned with like precision you're concerned with sort of gestures and phrasing and voices and like all this stuff that gives it you know that sort of fluid water feel like you mentioned yeah yeah i mean i i think my 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 love for precision precision is more in my sound like i like a very clear clear sound but um and i think that just has to do with technique you've got to develop your technique you know but but yes as far as phrasing i want to sound more like a voice than a drummer you know i want to or like nature water um i want to be able to play like that Sorry, you, you can apply that to, to any genre. Like once you figure that out about yourself, you can sort of like plug it into different shaped spaces. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, first playing with Natalie Merchant because there's I, – I think for for anyone who's trained in, you know, classical and or jazz like we were – um, if you start playing outside those genres, there's, there's like a humbling that happens <laughs> when you're like all, all my school learning doesn't mean shit here. Like it is about phrase and feel and story and, uh, and no chart. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, no, yeah. My, my, never. my reading won't save me here. It's like, I have to listen and feel and read the room. And, um, yeah, I've, I've, and, I've, and, per, and, and, you almost sometimes like it's, it has to do with personal connection and yeah, and being able to read body language of a singer, you know, and for real understanding the psychological aspect of being the drummer. You know what I mean? Like yeah, knowing that when you get that little, like getting to know a singer and like oh they just move their shoulder in this way, mm-hmm. which means or that I just saw them look a little bit at me, which means I'm playing too loud. Or like, yeah. oh, let me play quietly because I or I, this used to happen sometimes where I would work with a singer and they'd say, oh, it feels a little too loud. Can you play brushes? But, you know, brushes is not, you know, we know that brushes just doesn't have to do with volume. It has to do with texture and timbre. So yeah. in my mind, I'm thinking it's not the right it's not the right sound to play with brushes. But I would just play brushes and then slowly bring the sticks back but play really quietly and they don't know the difference. You know what I mean? Like being able to read it and, and, and figure out when to take chances and when to hold back and things like that. Yeah. And it's making me realize that like one of the, one of the differences between, you know, playing a a straight ahead jazz or, you know, bebop gig or whatever, and playing behind somebody like Natalie Merchant or, or a singer songwriter, like a singer songwriter, I think has to trust the drummer in a way that a saxophone player does not. Um, Mm -hmm. and like you said, there's, there's an emotional connection there. I think it has to do with the fact that like these, like, these are my songs. These come from my heart. These come from my soul. And I want you to take them as seriously as I do. Um, whereas, you know, if you're playing behind, uh, a trumpet player at a jazz gig, like that person 
has a different agenda, I think, that they still have to trust you. You still have to be with them. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's just that singer-songwriters are more insecure or something. Uh, I, d- I don't think that's true. But I, I'm, I'm just reminded of, like, every time I'm playing with a singer, it's like I, I, I want to be more careful. I want to be more there for them um, mm. than I would be behind a horn player because they can take care of themselves <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah and they're not they don't care anyway they just want to take 20 courses <laughs> yeah at least <laughs> at, at least. least and then go get a beer while yeah. you play a I was solo just, all yeah, I was, by yourself i was just gonna say that and then go to the bathroom or get a drink while you solo assholes yeah. <laughs> um, going going back to lonnie for a second um I, I love the B3. I'm obsessed with it. Um, did, did you find that um, it made you play differently? Like, obviously, Lonnie brought certain things out in your playing. But, like, did you find that just the instrument of the B3 and playing along with that instrument sort of, like, put you in a different headspace? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I mean, first of all, Lonnie puts you in a different headspace. You know, yes. there was no one like the doc. Right. You see... Oh, there he is. Yeah. 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 Nobody liked the doc. I mean, in every single way, you know, like the most loving, supportive, quirky, uh, childlike, you Mm. know, joyful human being you'll ever meet, you know, and um, Phil was number one, you know, I, you know, first of all, with Lonnie, I would sit behind, um, behind him to the left a little bit, mm-hmm. like kind of curved so I could see his feet because he yeah. would also, he played left-hand bass, but he also would double his feet or just walk bass with his feet, you know, yeah. and that was really important. And also talk about spontaneous, spont- spont- spontaneity. He would never have a plan. And, you know, mm. he would start a tune and end a different tune, you know, like there was no never talking about anything. He hated mm-hmm. rehearsing. We didn't rehearse. <laughs> um, and he didn't read music. So it was just like, we just played, you know? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I remember playing Bemsha's Swing. He liked to play it in five. And, but then he would just, sometimes he'd play it in five. Sometimes he'd go into six for a chorus. You know, you just, just got to listen and go with him, you know? And right. um, yeah, I do think, I think with B3, and I don't know how much B3 you've, trio you've played with there's a certain like uh for me i i it's like i'm listening hardcore but i'm also really focusing on holding the time and really sitting in that role of the drummer because the tendency for b3 players and i'm not saying lonnie was like this but i've played with a lot of b3 players is to really push so if you are if you're a drummer who is already struggling with your tempos and pushing and rushing the tempo is going to get insane you know so for that position, I would really focus and I would try to sonically stay out of the way of the low end of the B3. So yeah. I wouldn't be playing too much low end. Um, but it was mainly the feel, you know, like I, I, Lonnie wasn't my first regular B3 gig. I played with um, a wonderful Pittsburgh based um, organ player, some, called, um, this man named Jimmy Ludwig, uh, sorry, Gene Ludwig. Mm-hmm. And he was incredible and he had that old school style where he played. I mean, if I didn't hold it, the tempo was just like shot yeah. up, you know? <laughs> yeah. and it was super swinging. But by the end it'd be like, Whoa, this is too fast. You know? So I really, 
learned my lesson there uh, yeah, about, yeah. about how to play with B3. Yeah. Um, one of my one of my good friends is a great B three player named Ty Bailey who who lives in Nashville now. Um, we we met when we both lived in L A and and played a shitload of trio gigs there. Um, but uh, again, like you said about Lonnie, like it was it was partly his personality and partly the instrument. But the the more I played with Ty and and subsequent B three players, um, it just sort of like for some reason playing next to that instrument just made me play simpler and tastier. Like, I don't know why, like, it's kind of, kind of what you mentioned about, like, you've, you've got to hold the time where it is, but like, there isn't as much of a point on the low end as there is with like a bass, an upright bass. Um, and I just, I, I found that like the simpler I played, the better everything felt. And it, it was like, it was a load off. I was like, Oh, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like I just have to play time and it feels this good. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that you say that because to, to piggyback off that concept, that's one of the most important things. Lenny, uh, Lenny, Lonnie said to me, actually, mm -hmm. we were playing the jazz standard and he, he, uh, he used to call me little alley. He's like, little alley, come back to the dressing room. I want to talk to you. So I go back there and he's like, He's like, I can know. I know you can play all that fancy shit, but don't play it. Just, <laughs> just let it, let it simmer, let it sizzle. Yeah. And he's like, he said, it's like a scratch. It's like an itch. Don't like go as long as possible without scratching that itch. Mm. And then finally, when you do, it'll be impactful. I mean, you know, he said it in his own yeah. language, but yeah. But I'm telling you what, like that was the best information I ever heard um, because that next set and like all of my next few years of playing with him, I would just focus on the simple pocket for as long as possible, you know? And yep. then when I finally did do something, it actually made sense, you know? Right, <laughs> and right. the, you, there's something in that when you play in that environment, like you're, and you play, like you're talking, you, you just talked about, there's this tension that builds. That's like so swinging. It's like, and it's like almost orgasmic, you know? And then yeah. finally when it breaks, it's like, ah, yeah, there's some like this is this is a common skill among almost all B three players. I feel like it's something about that instrument. Like they they know how to draw it out, how to not scratch that itch, how to build momentum, and then like they open up all those draw bars, and you're like, Rah! it's you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the best. Yeah, and so I mean, it taught me a lot of patience. Really, I think it's you know, in, in addition to empty space, you know, patience is is one of the things that so many jazz drummers and jazz musicians in general struggle with, and I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. But like, um, yeah, just playing playing with with Ty and other organists and, and that instrument, it, it like I said, it just kind of got me out of my head, and it's like, no, just stay stay where you are for another chorus, and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, in some ways, patience isn't really um, embraced these days in yeah, life. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, mm. um, it doesn't work for, for a lot of um, aspects of life. It, patience should work for you, but it doesn't always work for you. You know what I mean? It's not encouraged yeah. basically. Like yeah, yeah. no one's on Instagram saying be patient, you know, I mean, right. <laughs> unless you're like following self-help. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's all about like, oh, you got to post a drum video every day. And then at the same time you're doing that, you should do your TikTok and your blah, blah, blah. And you know, like these, I feel for these young students because they're doing all of that stuff. And then I'm like, well, what, did you listen to any music today? You know, yeah. I listened to like 
I listen to, you know, Nate Smith take a solo on Instagram. I'm like, well, that's cool, but also listen to some music, you know? Right. That's not a record. <laughs> yeah, there's no, not, there's no patience there, you know? Yeah. It reminds me of um, when, when I was in Kansas City. My connection to Carvin is that when I went to grad school in Kansas City, um, it was under Bobby Watson. Um, ah. Yeah, yeah. And so like him and Carvin go way back. So he would bring in Carvin like once a semester to work with the band and do some lessons and stuff. And there was one visit um, that Carvin made when he had just released one of his records. And I don't remember what the title of the record was. This would have been 2008, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I had listened to it and I saw him and I was like, man, the record's so great. And he was like, did you hear the patience on that record? And... <laughs> I was like, I, I said yes, but I was like, oh shit, I got to listen to it again. <laughs> and I went back and listened and it was, I mean, it was as if he made this record to like teach me a lesson or just demonstrate something to me. And I listened to the whole record. I was like, wow, he really didn't do a lot. Like he just stays in one place for a lot of those songs. And it's just so fucking good. <laughs> so good. Yeah. yeah. I, I said that to my students today. I said, you guys just played more in the first eight bars of Stella than the Miles Quintet played in the first five minutes of Stella. You know, <laughs> like why are you playing so much stuff? You know. Yeah, just gotta gotta get it all out, man. That it's all it's all youthful exuberance, and and <laughs> some 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 don't grow out of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think yeah. most people do if if they're serious, but um, but it's a tough it's a tough road. Uh. <laughs> to shed yeah. it's about insecurity it's about shedding insecurity and just you know being patient leaving space and letting your voice you know uh come letting your voice come out from behind all the bullshit <laughs> yeah i mean that's you're speaking the truth i mean that's that's tough yeah it's tough i still struggle with that you know i have to like tell myself to be patient and 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 if i can feel my ego come creeping up i gotta I got to get rid of, I got to like get rid of it, you know? Yeah. Sweep it happened it to away. me today. Like when, when you mentioned Carvin sort of, you know, like as, as soon as he heard your ego, he was like at no, like I had the same experience with myself today. I was just in here playing alone. Like I wasn't really practicing. I was just like playing. And after about 20 minutes, I was like, I am trying to impress someone and there's nobody in this fucking room, but me. So I'm just going to step away for a second. And <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm trying to impress somebody. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, it was it was great talking to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Congrats yeah. on the on the new record and and good luck with traveling around. Um it was it was it was great to great to see you. Yeah, it was nice to talk about drumming and I love I love these kind of interviews or podcasts where you just it's like my favorite stuff to talk about, you know, like yeah, teachers I, we, and our, our like where we come from and philosophies about. Yeah, we try to make it more more of a hang and less of an interview. So I, we yes. we did it. <laughs> we did it. We win. Yay for us. <laughs> there you go, Allison Miller. Thanks to her for hanging. You can pre-order Rivers in Our Veins. That'll be out October 6th. And in the meantime, Allison has a pretty busy performing schedule with that project and others. Check it all out at allisonmiller.com. Next week, Matt Krauss will be talking with Brian Tishy, who has performed with Ozzy Osbourne, Whitesnake, Don Felder, and many others. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, play pretty, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.